0: Um, We're getting close to being done. You can go to Judges chapter 14 and that's where we'll be today. Judges chapter 14. Last week we were looking at Judges chapter 13. Joe preached, uh, our other pastor preached through uh, Judges chapter 13. We saw the birth of Samson and now we're going to uh, go to chapter 14. We're going to continue and then of course we'll look at him the next couple chapters as well. But today we're going to look at his marriage, Samson's marriage uh, so, if you're able to, uh, let's stand together to read Judges chapter 14, <clears throat> and then we'll pray. Starting in chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father, said to him, his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of, the, of your relatives or among our people that you must go take a wife from uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him. Roin the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes, verse eight. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees inside the body of the lion in honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some to eat, and they ate. But he did not tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Verse ten. His father went down to the woman, and as Samson prepared <coughs> a feast there for the young men, used to do so. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. Samson said to them, "Now let me, now, I'm sorry, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast." And find it out. I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, "Put your riddle that we may hear it." And he said to them, "Out of the eater came something sweet. Out of the strong, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet." And in three days they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, "Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn in your father's house with you. Lest we burn you in your father's house with you." Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You hate, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said, behold, I have not told my father and my mother, and I should tell you. She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then he told her <coughs> Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city on the seventh day before the sun went down said, What is stronger than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, then you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord struck uh, I'm sorry, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we ask now that you would come and that you would teach us uh, as we look at this marriage of Samson and really the tragedy, what is Samson's life, that you would point us to Christ, that you would put within us a deep desire to have holiness in our life, unlike Samson, that we would deep, deeply desire to please you, live a life uh, that gives you glory, that pursues after holiness, and that we must have Jesus as our only hope. We pray that we would see these things in the text and that you would empower me to speak your truth by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember last week, we're looking at the birth of Samson in chapter 13. And maybe one of the most important verses I can point you back to, uh, if you weren't here last week, was... in. a couple verses in chapter 13. The first one is in chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 1. And so, and the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. They entered back into this deep cycle of oppression where they finally had peace. But then they did what was evil and another oppressor came. And we can see here that they're oppressed for 40 years. And as they're being oppressed for 40 years, the cycle always goes that the Lord would eventually, if the people would repent or cry out for confession and help, which they don't do here in chapter 14. The Lord would send them a judge, send them a rescuer. And so there's, there's a, a foretelling of this going to happen in verse 5. You can see in verse 5 that Samson's going to be the one to free them from the Philistines. And it said, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. He's talking to Samson's parents. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So they know that Uh, Samson's parents know that he's going to help save them, bring them out of the oppression of the Philistines, much like all the other judges have. Uh, And the interesting thing here is that we see that he's going to be a Nazarite to God. He's going to be a Nazarite. We're going to come back to that and what that means out of numbers. But we know that he's going to be a Nazarite, which means they're never going to cut his hair, among some other things. And that he's going to be the one that's going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, much like some of the other previous judges. Samson will. Tim Keller, looking at chapter 14, says this. In this section of Judges, we find by far the most flawed character in the book of Judges. A violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally mature, and selfish man. Most disturbing of it all, the Spirit of God seems to anoint and use his fits of pride and temper. So the very things that make him weak, that make him terrible, God's going to take those things and use them for good. He's not not a good guy. He is the 12th and the final judge of the book of Judges. And as I've said, uh, the book of Judges have a spiraling down, downward spiral of depravity and judges. So when we started with Othniel in the very beginning, um, he was a great judge. He was married to the godly, faithful Aksa, his wife. And as you keep going down the spiral, we end with Samson married to an unknown Philistine that doesn't even know God. She's not even Israelite. So And we'll see later uh, the problems that he'll have with Delilah. I'm sure you've heard that. So you you can just see how he's. we've started with Othniel, with this wonderful godly wife, and how the depravity of man has brought uh, Samson to be the last judge, a tragic, tragic, terrible, uh, in the end, terrible guy uh, who is married to an unknown Philistine. So how far has Israel fallen as we've gone to this 14th chapter? And we can ask ourselves, how far? Well, it tells us in verse 1, Samson... Went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Verse 1 tells us how, how, how tragic the story of Israel has become. Timnah is Israelite territory. So he's going deep into the Israelite territory. This was their land, and it says, and he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. The Philistines had oppressed Israel for 40 years by this time. And the the oppression was so bad that Israel had just become totally peaceful living with the Philistines. That's how bad it had become. That Israel was absolutely at home and at peace with their oppressors. And in the same way, we can be at home and totally at peace with sin in our life, the oppression of sin in our life, and not even realize it. That's how far it had come for Israel. So much so that... This judge goes to Timnah and he sees a Philistine daughter and thinks nothing of it to come back to his parents and say, I want the Philistine daughter to marry. Not an Israelite, but a Philistine daughter because we're so surrounded by them. It's so much a part of who we are. We're so at peace with the sinful oppressors of us, the Philistines. I want to marry their daughters. A judge wants to do this. Um, And the Israelites at this particular point had virtually become completely unconscious to their enslavement. That's how bad it had become from Othniel down to Samson. They're absolutely unaware of their enslavement. And warning, as I said, for us as Christians, this can happen to us if we're not making daily war on our own sin and the own oppression that comes from us from sin, that we can be so unaware that we are unconscious to our own sinful enslavements around us. We can be that used to sin There is no such thing and there should be no such thing between a heart and and a harmonious coexistence between a Christian and sin. There should be no harmonious coexistence between Israel and the Philistines. And where there is no conflict, it's because sin has completely taken over. And there was no conflict between the Philistines and uh, the Israelites. Sin Oppression had completely taken over. And the same thing with us. if we don't have any conflict with our sin, if we really don't ever see any time where we should be making war, that means we have come, become completely harmonious with our sin around us. Now, what God wants to do is he wants to put division between the Philistines and Israel. He's not happy at all with how comfortable they've become. And so if we just read verses 1 through 3, we think Samson is just wicked. Look what it says. So he goes down to the, to the... To the um, Timnah, he sees a daughter of the Philistines, and he came up and he told his father and, and his uh, and his mother, "I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife." Now, by the way, you don't. We don't talk to our, our children shouldn't talk to their parents like this right now. They really shouldn't talk to their parents back then. It's just totally disrespectful. But his father and mother are like, "What Philistines? Um, is there not a woman among the daughters of your own relatives or of our people?" Like, don't you want an Israelite woman? Why do you want to go find an uncircumcised Philistine? And it says, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. Now, if we just stopped in verses 1 through 3, we would just think, wow, this this guy's, he's pretty bad. Now, the interesting part is verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. That's interesting. God has become so uh, impatient with the Philistines and Israel living together. There's no no way to break them apart. So he's going to make, he's going to allow, he's going to use a sinful decision of Samson, i.e. marrying a Philistine, which they're not supposed to do, to actually bring division between the Philistines and Israel. This marriage will bring division because of Samson's impulsiveness and his anger. They're going to, we already read, they're going to figure out his riddle. He's going to get mad and he's going to go beat them to death. He's going to beat 30 of them to death. And that's going to bring the division within the Philistines and Israel that was finally needing to happen after 40 years. So what we see here then is God using something quite interesting. He's going to use um, sinful decisions of Samson to bring about uh, a greater bringing away of, of oppression. It was from the Lord. God's going to use the disobedience of, of, of Samson to finally wake up Israel from their oppression. So verse four, four does say that it's from the Lord because the Lord was seeking an opportunity. Whenever you see in verse four, his, his father and mother did not know it. It was from the Lord for he, the he there, this pronoun is speaking of God, not Samson, God. God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God wanted the Philistines and Israel to be separate. He's been saying that throughout the entire book of Judges. He does not want Israel to mix in with their oppressors. And at that time, Philistines ruled over Israel. And so uh, Israel had become so numb to their sin and so comfortable with the Philistines, God's going to use the disobedience of Samson marrying outside of Israel to put discomfort and enmity now between them and the Philistines. So as we're Going through this particular text, we're seeing the holiness that's necessary for God's people. The first thing that we can see as we're going through chapter 14 is this. God's sovereign purpose is to wake us up from sinful oppression and unconscious enslavement. God's sovereign purpose. Now, I say sovereign because God's using sinful desires of Samson to bring about the end of spiritual oppression. We would want him to use non-sinful desires of Samson to bring about the end of spiritual uh, sinful oppression. But that's not, it's so bad that this is how God is going to do it. So God's going to wake us up from sinful oppression and unconscious enslavement. In this text, Samson's sinfulness, which are his worldly impulses, are, are going to be used because they are so oppressed. And what this means is this, it means in your life, your sin, my sin, can be so bad that he'll let it continue with us until one day we are totally unconscious and unaware of our addiction and our enslavement to that sin. Now, we would say, why would he do that? It could be his kindness that does that. It could be his kindness that lets us finally get to that point, a Romans 1 moment. And we will be absolutely as comfortable with it as the Israelites are with the Philistines. This is a terrible way to be awakened to our sin. We should never want ourselves to be so sinful that we are unconsciously enslaved to this. But it's a terrible way to be awakened to your wretches of your sin. But sometimes it might have to happen for us if we are this involved with oppression like Israel was for 40 years. We should pray this never happens. We should pray this never, ever happens and that it never happens to us. That God would wake us up from our slumber much earlier. God is using sin to ultimately kill sin. God is using sin, marrying a Philistine, to ultimately kill sin, which is the sinful oppression of the Philistines against the people of Israel because they're so comfortable being with pagans. That's, that's astounding. That's, that's not the way we would think it would happen. But here, that's what's going on, which means, number one, I know that's really small, I'm sorry. God's sovereign purpose is to wake us up from sinful oppression. Always, especially from unconscious enslavement, From sin to sin. So pray right now in your heart and mind. Lord, if I am unconsciously totally enslaved to some kind of sin, be it pride or pornography or addiction or anger or whatever it is, Wake me up from that, Lord. Bring me out of my slumber. Don't let me continue to go further into sin until I finally am so bad that I'm awakened to it. But wake me up earlier so that as a Christian, I can pursue holiness. I can be what you want as God's person. Now, what we're going to see here is that God gives us power. And I want you to note some things here with me. As we see, uh, before we get into chapter 14, we can see... At the very end of chapter 13, starting at verse 4, and the woman bore a son, his name was Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir uh, him in Menahahedan between Zora and Eschatol. So we already see early in Samson's life, the spirit of the Lord is beginning to stir in him. And we see in ch- uh, chapter 14:4 4, that this desire to marry the unnamed Philistine lady is from the Lord. And we also see in 14.6, whenever he wrestles the lion, it says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and then he had nothing in his hand. He tore the lion into pieces like a young goat. So we see the Spirit of the Lord rushing. And we even saw in 14.19, right after they had figured out his riddle, and he got really crazy mad, in verse 19, and he, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down. So what we see over and over is that there is a repetition of the Spirit of the Lord rushing on him or being with him or something being from the Lord, which leads us to the second thing. Look at verse 5 and 6 again with me. Um, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Now, what we know from this is that his parents weren't with him at this moment. They went down with him, but at some point they had departed because it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces and went to a young goat. But he didn't tell his father and mother what he had done. So in this moment, his father and mother weren't with him when he wrestled the lion and ripped it apart. Um, so second thing. Number two. Oh, much bigger. Nice. Um, number two. God's sin-killing power comes from the Holy Spirit. Number two, it's going to come up there in a second. It's probably being made big. Thanks, Jordan. Um, God's sin-killing power comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, you're going to say, okay, Fudd, it seems like quite a leap to say uh, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him when he killed a lion and take that to mean we can kill sin. Granted, that is a pretty big jump. Although I could say to you, the Holy Spirit gives us amazing power to do supernatural things, which is what he did. Who can rip apart a lion? I can't. Well, some days when I'm really good on bench press, but no, nah, obviously we can't, right? We, I couldn't rip apart a mouse if I wanted to. Um, but he has this amazing power to rip apart uh, a lion. And it's, it's, it's important that we see the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So the power he has over and over when Samson's strong, and you know, he pushes over the columns later, every time he's strong, it's because the spirit of the Lord empowers him in that moment to be able to do it. It's also because of the hair, but it's, it's also because of this, the spirit of the Lord's on him. So you could say, it seems like quite a leap just to say, because the spirit rushed upon him, uh, that we can also kill sin just like he killed a lion. I get that. I understand that's a little bit of a leap, but let me let you see why. As we saw in 14.6, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And as I said in 14.19, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men uh, of the Philistines, basically. Now, when he went down in 1419 and he kills these 30 Philistines, the Philistines are the oppressors of Israel. We already know that. And we know that in 13.5, um, well, in thirteen one, that the Philistines were oppressing them for 40 years. We know in 13.5, where it says, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That what's going on here is that when Samson goes down and kills those men, because he's filled with the Spirit or the the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, he goes down and kills those people, he's bringing into fruition the prophecy of 13.5 that he's going to begin ending the oppression of the Philistines. The Holy Spirit is what caused him to have the strength enough to go down there and be able to do that in 14.19 when he kills the Philistines. So when the Holy Spirit's in him, he has the power to get rid of the oppressor. So when we see this, the same wording, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in 14.6 and 14.9, really what we can say is the Spirit of the Lord, when it rushes upon him, has the power to end oppression, namely the Philistines. Here it's just the lion, but in 14.19, it's the oppression of the Philistines. So if we say the same thing for us, when the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, we have the power to end oppression by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that he ripped apart a lion, it's that he also killed Philistines and that's the prophecy that had to come to pass. And they were the ones that were oppressing them. So we know that God's sin-killing power then comes from the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the New Testament <clears throat> in a much clearer way. It says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that's sin, you will live. So we know that we are to put to death sin by the Spirit. Put to death our sin by the Spirit. We must want our sin to be dead. We are not supposed to kill sin by trying to kill its blossoms. We kill sin by killing its root. You can put away flowers all day long, and they'll just keep coming. That's not how you kill sin. You go down to the root of the sin. You figure out what it is, by the power of the Spirit, through the Word, through accountability, you find the root, and you starve and kill the root. And to kill sin in our life is intended to be a violent work by the power of the Spirit. It's a blood-earnest affair that we are not to take lightly or to do half-heartedly. John Piper says this, With a bloody crucifixion at the center of everything of Christianity, we're not to be surprised that in dealing with sin, that killing sin, that Christ died to destroy it. We're to draw some very serious conflict then from this. Warfare. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in him and died to sin. Therefore, kill in yourself every quivering of that corpse of sin in you. So we are to take killing sin very earnestly very seriously. And the way that we do it is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean practically to kill sin by the Spirit at the root rather than the blossoms? I think very practically it means that we we use the Word as its intended purposes. We have been told in Psalm 119, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That means we are memorizing as much Scripture as we possibly can. And when you go to the the, um, in Galatians, the, the armor of God that we have in Galatians, and there's lots of defensive things, but there's one thing There's only one offensive weapon, that's the sword. And so the sword of the Spirit is the Word, as it tells us. And so, as John Piper says, you can memorize little short verses, and you can memorize long passages. The short verses are, you know, your tiny little knives. That's my one little verse, and I'm going to kill my little sin this way. And then I've got big swords. I'm going to memorize paragraphs of the Bible, and I'm going to kill sin with that. And so I do all that because the Spirit is in me, and I'm memorizing Scripture. And by the Spirit, whenever sin comes into me, the Spirit brings these verses into my mind, and I kill it by starving it at the root. I don't just try to willpower myself of not doing these bad sins that that I know are bad, but instead, all of these sins that come to me, I have Scripture memorized, the Spirit brings those to me, and I starve to death those particular sins. I think that's what it means to kill sin by the Spirit, is that you should have a much higher Bible memorization game than what we probably have. You should be killing it in Bible memorization. You should know the Bible better than you know songs. You should know the Bible better than you know Netflix. You should know the Bible better than you know anything else. Sports figures, stats, your fantasy football. None of that stuff should be something that you memorize better than the Bible. Listen, I like fantasy football. I'm doing okay this year. I like things like that, right? I'm okay with watching sports. But those things should not be more in my mind and more memorized in my mind than the Bible. because whether I win fantasy football this year or not means nothing in comparison to killing sin or fill in the blank on whatever it is that that you like to memorize, songs or whatever. I'm okay with Christian songs. God is too, but it's not the Bible unless they're singing the Bible. So memorize scripture. Now we've seen in verses five and six, Samson be strong. And up to this particular point, We've seen him be disrespectful to his parents, demand a Philistine woman, a lot of sinful stuff already. He tore apart a lion. And we're like, maybe he's all right. And then we're going to see some really bad stuff about Samson here. We're going to see him be weak again. He's going to do a lot of kind of bad things start following here. In verse 7, he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. Again, we see this right in Samson's eyes. This should just be the same thing as Judges Twenty one twenty five 25, and everyone did what was, they had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, bad. So right in his own eyes. This isn't, this isn't likely, I don't think it's a good attraction. This is a bad attraction. And it says, um, after some days, he returned to take her, become married to her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Now this isn't normally how bees make honey and dead carcasses of animals. So this is a supernatural thing that God's doing and putting there for Samson to see if he's going to be faithful or not be faithful. That's likely what's going on right here. Um, so when we see that the tragedy of Samson's life over and over repeated, we're going to see that he does not have the ability to conquer his own indwelling sin and follow God's law. He, he's a sexual ind- deviant. He's going to drink. Here in just a second, which is not allowed. He has anger, he has pride issues, and his story is just quite, quite sad. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, I want you to see uh, why this is important. You don't have to flip if you want, I'll read it. But Numbers chapter 6, we know that he's taken this Nazarite vow. And if he's taken the Nazarite vow, there's three specific things that Samson has to do. He's going to break two of those in this chapter, and he's going to break the third one later on in his life. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself from the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Can't have alcohol. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and he shall not drink any juice or grapes or eat of the grapes fresh or dried all the days um, of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even seeds of the skins. Number one. Number two, verse five. All the days of his vow, no... of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is complete, which he separates himself to the Nazarite. He shall be holy and let the locks of his hair grow long. He's doing that. Um, He's going to be a Nazarite to the end. He's taking the Nazarite vow. Number three, right here in verse six, in all the days he separates himself, he shall not go near a dead body. Three things, no dead bodies, no alcohol, no cutting your hair. He's going to break two of those in chapter 14. And we know later on that Delilah shaves his head later. So, here we go. After some days, he returned to take her. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees and the body of the lion and honey. A temptation. Is he going to break the Nazarite vow or not? He scraped it out of his hands and went on eating as he went. Yes, he is. Not only that, he has such disregard for his own parents who shouldn't be eating out of the dead carcasses, but they don't know that he had done that. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, and they ate. So now, because of... His um, impulsive anger, pride, uh, impulsiveness that he has where he's, he doesn't care. He also brings his parents into his particular sin. His parents at his birth sanctified him. In this chapter, he desecrates his parents. So our sin, if we're not watching it, leaks out into the people around us that we love. It goes further. We don't want it to, maybe. He doesn't really seem to care about his parents very much at all. Uh, but if we're not taking care of our sin and killing our sin, it always affects the people around us. And that's what's happening with Samson. His parents now are, unbeknownst to them, uh, not clean. They've become unclean. And you can see, as you keep going, um, and his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast, where you see the word feast here. This is mishta. Uh, the ESV just tells us feasts. This is actually a drinking feast. This is a seven-day drinking bout. This is a big, huge, get drunk party. Uh, Samson's going to have that breaking vow number two. So, so he's he's already broke two out of the three here during this whole feast here. And as, as soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions. That just means friends. So apparently, and. and They're not really sure, commentators, but whenever the Philistines had some kind of weddings, uh, the Philistines would supply companions, and they weren't sure if this just means groomsmen, like here's 30 groomsmen to hang out with you for this seven-day feast, or guards, we don't want you to run away, and we want you to get married to her, and so no matter what, these guys are around you. It could be guards, it could be groomsmen. I think it's groomsmen, um, because as we see in verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who has been his best man. It seems like they're the groomsmen from context in verse 20. But nevertheless, they give him these groomsmen and they're hanging out for a week. And Samson uh, wants to create a riddle. And it says, and Samson said to him, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is uh, within the seven days of the feast and out of it, then you can give me 30 garments and 30 changes of clothes. Uh, modern day equivalent is you owe me 30 pairs of underwear and 30 pants and shirts. Um, and they're like, all right. They don't have the benefit of knowing that he had just ripped apart a lion. We, the reader, have the benefit, so we know the answer. We're in on it, right? His parents don't even know the answer, and he gives them this, and he said, put your riddle that we may hear it, and he said to them right here, uh, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. We know what this is, um, but they don't. And in three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. I'm going to stop here and go ahead and put up number three, because what we're going to see as we're going through this, this one little section is pursuing holiness cannot be done half-heartedly. As we're going through this, Samson is just breaking all kinds of commandments and laws. He's um, he's eating out of a dead animal, bringing his parents into eating out of the dead animal. He's drinking right here. He's, I don't know if this is necessarily wrong to give a riddle, but he's certainly uh, he certainly seems to have some pride. Uh, whenever he, he gives the, uh, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet, he's talking about himself, right? That's like the, one of the biggest humble brags I've ever seen. Like, the riddle is, I'm awesome, just so you know. So he's clearly prideful. Um, Nevertheless, I, I can't stand humble brags. They drive me crazy. when they're Like, I'm so blessed and so whatever to finally go do this big awesome thing that, and God's just so blessed me that I can do it. I'm doing this great thing. Everybody, you should know how great I am because I'm doing this thing, but I'm blessed and humble about it. Like, humble brags just drive me crazy. If you're doing something awesome, keep it to yourself. Tell your friends and let them pray for you. Don't put it on social media so everybody can just think you're awesome. That's really what you want. You're like, oh, you're awesome. You're just so awesome. Like, I can't stand humble brags. And I think that's what this riddle is, is I'm the guy that ripped apart a lion and you didn't. Um, Anyway, back to the thing. So what we see here is pursuing holiness for for Samson, I'm not even sure we can even say half-heartedly, maybe quarter-heartedly, who who knows, maybe zero-heartedly. He's not really good at obeying God's commandments. Holiness should not be a 50% endeavor for us as believers, it's not supposed to be something that we just, okay, we're breaking some commandments and okay, we're following these. Holiness for us is, what does the Lord want? I wanna do it. It's not, I gotta do it. I wanna do it. Jesus died for me and saved me from all of my sin. Why would I not wanna do everything that he wants me to do? Sin comes to me, no thank you. Jesus is more precious. Jesus is more, more beautiful than any of that realities. Um, I was reading a, 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 a Piper sermon this week. About uh, about sin and about holiness. And he said, as pastors, whenever you preach to people about sin, you don't want to over and over just try to say, here's the list, don't do it. Here's the list of stuff that you do. Instead, uh, if you just give them morals and laws and, and codes to follow, they'll eventually stop. What you want to do, he's talking to pastors, is instead of telling them what not to do, hold out that Jesus is the most beautiful, precious reality in all the world, and try to put on display the beauty of Jesus as you preach, that's more enticing than rules. Because we all just like rules, nah. But you hold out Jesus and you're like, look how beautiful he is. Don't you want to live for him? He died for you. He gave his life for you. He, he loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine in your life. That's what makes people say yes to holiness, not rules. And so... Um, Day in, day out, week in, week out, that's what I want to do. Day in, day out, do the same thing in your own life. Don't concentrate on the law, although we have it as a guide. The Holy Spirit certainly helps us. Day in, day out, think on Christ, his beautifulness, his, the unbelieving love that he has for us, that he would give his life for us. That's how you pursue holiness, wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. And so we see here... Um, On verse 15, on the fourth day, they came to Samson's wife. They can't figure it out after uh, basically about half the week. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is. (laughs) Lest we burn you and your house and your father's house. They have a real arson problem in Judges. Like everybody's just like, if you don't do what I'm saying, I'm going to burn this house down. Every chapter, I'm going to burn everything down. I don't know what it was back then, but man, a lot of arsons. Um, Anyway, so she goes to him in verse 16. Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people, and you've not told me what it is. And you can just see, I mean, I don't know if he really, really cares about this lady. And he says, uh, behold, I've not even told my father and mother, shall I tell you? We can see how little he cares about his parents thus far. He's like, I haven't even told them, and I don't really care about them. I'm going to tell you? Like, why are you marrying her? Because she looks good. She looks right in my eyes. So I'm not sure how much he cares about her. Nevertheless, um, this particular uh, text here for us uh, is a foreshadowing. One, one commenter says that Samson is completely helpless when confronted with the love of women. Um, he has a sinful flaw about him when it comes to this. And it, she, you can see here, But what I have not told my father and mother, she went before him seven days. Um, And the feast lasted on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard and then she went and told the people. So this is a foreshadowing. Um, This is why pursuing holiness can't be done half-heartedly. The second time that this happens, the stakes are much greater. Here it's just he loses a bet. The next time is his head gets shaved and now he's going to have to die pushing over columns. So killing sin early is important because when you don't, the stakes get greater. And for Samson, the stakes get... This is a foreshadowing that he has no capacity to withstand his compassions, his his sinful passions, and ultimately it's going to kill him. We have to take sin seriously. We can't do it half-heartedly. This is why. This is exactly why. He doesn't. And so awareness of our sin is the beginning of us being delivered from that sin. And in dramatic fashion, you can see here the 11th hour, they come to him, the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, just before the sun went down, which is like... Right at the, the last little second, it's like the last second field goal and everything. Gano wins. woohoo! You know, it's one of those things. They come back and just to mess with him, just to tick him off, they give their answer back in riddle form with questions. Um, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And so they, they give him the answers back in riddle form. Uh, and so doing that, of course, is just to irritate him more. That's the only point. And he says, um, if you had not... In, in poetic form back to them, a derogatory remark about his almost wife. If you're not plowed with my heifer, you're not figured out, figured out my riddle. Just perpetuating his sinfulness that he would talk about his wife this way. And so what we see here is this. Pursuing holiness cannot be done half-heartedly. That's the tragedy of Samson's life is that he is just not doing things as God would intend. And then we see in verse 19 the bringing of fruition to this chapter. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Now, if we didn't have that, if we didn't have that first clause, those first nine words, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words, we just had, we just started right after that. We would think Samson's insane, right? If we just went to, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down the city of the men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had the riddle and hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to, if we just read that, we'd think, wow, this guy's crazy, but it's the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and made him like he owed, the, he owed those, those companions 30 things. He's like, that's fine. And he goes down over to Ashkelon for more Philistines, kills 30 people, takes their clothes and comes back to these guys and says, here's your clothes. I killed them from your guys. Like, that's how mad he is. He didn't go get his own. He just goes, kills 30 of their men and brings it back. That brings the division. <laughs> that's going to be something that's going to bring division between Philistines and Israelites. He lost the thing. And so he goes and kills their people and gives them their clothes. Here it is. And then he just goes and pouts, I'm going back to my parents' house. You know, like, and he doesn't even get to marry this lady anymore. We can see later on that in verse 15 that she's gone and she actually, she actually dies. Um, so nevertheless, what we see, though, is the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So instead of dwelling on the anger of Samson, righteous or not, and he certainly has a major anger problem, I think that we need to major on the first nine words. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And ultimately, he becomes the rescuer of Israel in this. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He brings division now finally between the Philistines and Israel. And ultimately, whenever he kills them later on, the oppression of the Philistines will end. So, number four, God's deliverance comes ultimately through the rescuer. That should be 19 and 20, not 19 through 2. 19 through 20. This means that ultimately, I put it in capital letters, the rescuer, because I'm talking about Jesus. God's deliverance ultimately for us comes through Jesus. Samson doesn't do this beginning of ending the oppression on his own. It's from the Lord. Israel, tell, uh, we know in 13 when they've been oppressed for 40 years, we know that Samson's going to be the one that brings salvation, and here is the fulfillment of that unconscious enslavement that they've had against the Philistines. It's finally going to stop. The Philistines and Israel would not exist comfortably beside each other anymore. This brings the break of comfort. Samson's anger brings it about, no doubt, but it certainly is from the Lord. The Lord is the rescuer here. Samson begins Israel's salvation, but ultimately it's because of the Lord. And therefore, ultimately for us, our salvation, our rescue comes from Jesus. He ends our oppression from sin as well, completely. Not minutely, not half-heartedly, not kind of like Samson. He ends our salvation. In Luke chapter 4, and Jesus when Jesus was in his ministry, he's at one of his hometowns, and he gets out the scroll, and he unrolls it, and it says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood to read. uh, And he he picked up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he he found the place, Isaiah 61. And he says, now remember, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. That's why I picked this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he had his anointed me to go proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the signs of the blight and to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has come to proclaim good news to us. He has set us free. He has given us sight. He is setting us free to those who are oppressed. We are oppressed in our sin. And he doesn't do it temporarily or half-heartedly or sinfully like Samson. He does it perfectly and infinitely and forever for us. Jesus is the one that ultimately brings us our salvation. He is our great rescuer. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer that brings us salvation. The Holy Spirit was upon him just like he was upon Samson. But unlike the Samson who does, who does it half-heartedly, Jesus is the rescuer that uses his whole heart, takes our whole heart, forgives our whole heart, makes it new, and puts a passion in us to therefore love him and follow him. So if we just looked at the first three points, we would think the hero of the sermon's me. The hero of the sermon's me. I have to Start knowing my sin, and also I got to make sure I'm tapping into the Holy Spirit, and I really got to stop being so uh, half-heartedly, half-heartedly killing sin. The hero of the sermon is not you. The goal of the sermon is not for you to try harder to pursue holiness. The hero of this sermon and every sermon is Jesus. The goal is to love him because all you want to do is be holy because Jesus has supplied for you everything you need. He's given you the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2021 says he will surely do it. He will sanctify you. The hero is always Jesus, not you, not me. We are just glad recipients of the fact that he's the great rescuer that brings salvation to us, gives us the spirit and enables us and promises us that we will be holy one day. So let's walk in that because he's worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Tragic people like Samson. Samson. I thank you for their stories. They can certainly help us realize um, all the places in our life that we can identify where we can live for you. We pray that we would realize that pursuing holiness is not a white-knuckle, try-harder endeavor. It's a spirit-filled, glad-hearted, open-handed receiving of the good news of the gospel that we have already received justification. We are completely right in your eyes. And now, because of the Spirit and because of your promise, we can be sanctified. We can be holy. So help us, God, remember that that's the case. Every day, help us walk in holiness. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.